0: Service today. May it bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews. Hebrews. So, in a lot of your Bibles, it will say the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. How many of you have that written in your Bibles? Okay, a lot of you do. <coughs> there is some indication and evidence that Paul, uh, he's probably the highest re- regarded one as far as the author of Hebrews but there are some things with that that we're not positive that it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, At some point in time, obviously, uh, as we read the last chapter of Hebrews, those that it was written to certainly knew who the writer was for sure. Uh, But there are a couple of issues uh, with uh, why we don't know for certain that it was Paul. Uh, I personally lean to that direction. I do believe that Uh, It could have very possibly been the Apostle Paul, and probably was, but to say it emphatically and to know for certain that it was Paul uh, is something that we cannot know. Uh, One of the reasons we know that is, uh, I think it's in chapter 13, I'd have to look the verse up specifically for you, but the author regards the fact that he is writing these things based on the things that he has learned from those who had actually heard these things. Um, And if you'll remember back, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about the things that he was speaking about in, I think it was the church at Corinth, uh, mentioned the fact that these were not things that men had taught him, but things that God had taught him. And so because of that reason, some people say, well, that's a reason why probably the Apostle Paul was not the author of it. I don't know that's a real strong argument, uh, but it is one of the reasons why some people kind of wonder about that. At the end of the day, uh, again, you're only talking about the human instrument because at the end of the day, We all know that the Scriptures are written and given by the Holy Spirit of God. So regardless of the human instrument that's used, God is still the one who wrote it, and it still belongs in our Bible, and it still is infallible and inerrant. And uh, the entire theme of the book uh, revolves around the supremacy of Christ in every facet, in every area. And uh, we're going to spend some time looking at a little bit of that today. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Brother Harold. Yep, I forgot about that. It should be all set. I did check with Brother Keith. He said all we got to do is hit the go button. We're good. we got it going? Okay, good. Um, so, uh, but there, there was a tendency, and the reason that the writer of Hebrews wrote this uh, was there was a tendency, as there have been so often in the last several books that we've looked at in the New Testament, uh, for some uh, works to creep in or some... Uh, There's a lot of persecution, a lot of pressure for people to revert back to Judaism, uh, to the keeping of the law. And uh, there's a strong, strong time of persecution during this particular period of time. Uh, The writer of Hebrews gives five different warnings in the book about uh, turning from their faith and and going back to the idea of Judaism. And uh, so he writes it for this purpose, to uh, encourage their faith, by showing them very clearly the supremacy of Christ in every aspect. So the book can be basically divided into three sections. I'll let you know what those are, and we'll look at each one of them a little bit more closely. In chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse number 13, uh, the writer deals with the supremacy of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who He was as a person, and uh, how He uh, is superior in a lot of ways. We're going to look at some of those here in just a few moments. The second section deals with the superiority of Christ's work. Not just His person, but the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is from chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 10, and verse number 18. And then the third section is chapter 10, uh, verse 19 through chapter 13, and verse number 25, that deals with the superiority of the, the, the Christian's walk. How a Christian should walk based on the fact that Uh, He's established the Spirit of Christ and His work in our lives. Then our walk uh, should be uh, above reproach. It ought to be something that uh, we strive for righteousness. We strive for Christian character and moral uh, excellence based on the truths of God. So these are the three sections of the book and how it's kind of broken down. If you'll keep those in mind as you read through it, it might help you make some better sense of the context and how the passages read. And so uh, we're going to look uh, at a few things here. The first section is dealing with the superiority of Christ's person. And since the faith of our, uh, of our Christian faith is based upon the very fact that Christ is who He said He was, that He was uh, revealed in Scripture to be the Son of God, not just a great prophet, not just um, a man who could work miracles, He was the very Son of God in the flesh. He was the Son of God incarnate. And uh, and this is very important because our salvation is dependent upon Him being the Son of God, not just a good prophet or a good man. Uh, and so the writer of Hebrews takes the opportunity, again, keeping in mind what the problem was. These people were being drawn back to the idea of Judaism. And in, in that mindset, there were false teachers, there were scoffers that were saying that, um, that Christ was nothing more than a, than a prophet. He was nothing more than... Uh, another one of the Old Testament saints. And they were losing out on who he was, uh, being 100% God and 100% man. And so uh, he goes through and he he lists several things um, that Christ is superior above, several different groups of people. And again, to establish the fact that he is God's son, he is deity himself. And so the writer uh, goes to an extreme, especially in chapter number one and into chapter two, he speaks to the fact that Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Now, again, this book is written to the Hebrews specifically. Uh, and to say that somebody was more important than the prophets to a Jew, to the Hebrews, uh, was certainly something that was of importance to them. Because they, they regarded their prophets very highly. And uh, also, the, the writer of Hebrews also makes mention of the fact that Christ... Uh, Is exalted and is superior even to the angels themselves. He does this in chapter 2 and uh, verse, uh, down around verse number 16 or so, uh, and dealing with the idea that he is superior to angels. And so he shows uh, this superiority uh, in the fact of his name, uh, the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that, you know, the Bible tells us that God has exalted him above uh, uh, angels. Uh, See, in Philippians chapter 2, I'm trying to think of it. uh, God has highly exalted him. And the Bible says, "...and has given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things on earth, things under the earth." Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up in uh, the book of Hebrews as uh, being one of the things that causes him to have the superiority over the prophets and over the angels. His position uh, being the Son of God, not just uh, another prophet or another man, but being the Son of God, uh, was, is dealt with very strongly here in the first portion. Um, and how that uh, Christ is uh, a son over his own house in chapter 3, verse number 6. And uh, the fact that he is um, the, the very Son of God himself. Uh, that he's worshipped by angels is brought out in this first section of Hebrews. The very fact that he's being worshipped by the angels, again showing his superiority over them. The fact that he is uh, incarnate deity. In other words, he's uh, he is in the in flesh, but he is all God. And I'm thankful that he did not stop becoming God. By the way, there are there are some teachings going around today that talk about the fact that when Jesus was born on the earth, that He was no longer God during that period of time. Can I tell you, that is a false doctrine. At no point was Jesus Christ not God. He is still deity. He, yes, He was in the form of a man, and was made in the fashion as a man, but He was still God in the flesh. And uh, so you need to keep these things in mind. Uh, chapter 3, looking with me verse number 1. Uh, we find that the writer of Hebrews expresses the fact that Christ... Uh, is greater than Moses. And this is, boy, talk about uh, talking to the Jews and the Hebrews about Him being greater than the prophets. You start saying that He's greater than Moses, and some of them will start uh, arguing with you, and they'll give you a hard time over that. So this was a very big deal to the Hebrews to be able to understand that Christ was greater even than Moses. Look in chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession "...Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that buildeth all things is God." And so he says, uh, look, he's above Moses as much as the person who builds a house is greater than the house, then Christ, who was the one who created Moses, would be greater than Moses." And again, establishing uh, the superiority of Christ's person, the fact that he is God's son and has a position of preeminence above every other person that is given in Scripture. Um, He establishes these truths, and then once he gets this established with the readers, he begins to um, warn them and to exhort them against departing from the faith that was once placed in Christ. Again, they were being drawn to Judaism. They were trying to be taught that Jesus <coughs> was nothing more than a good person or a good man. There are people that teach that even to this day. And you've got to be careful of these things. Uh, because there are some that will teach that Jesus was nothing more than a a wise man or a prophet. But uh, we need to understand that He was the Son of God. And so the writer, after he establishes all this, uh, he exhorts them to... Um, to be careful about departing from the faith that they had already placed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that God judges uh, those that are in unbelief. And uh, we certainly know the penalty for those that do not trust Christ as their Savior, those that choose not to believe. Uh, God's judgment is upon them. And so the writer of Hebrews brings this to the mind of these folks. That Listen, uh, if God judges those people, uh, how much more is He going to judge you if you've already uh, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you try to depart from that? Uh, there's going to be some judgment involved in that. So he warns them of that uh, throughout chapter 3, early part of chapter number 4. He then uses the illustration, and I think it's a valid illustration, of the generation that left Exodus... Uh, left in the Exodus from Egypt, Um, and that this generation that uh, left Egypt was intended by God to be the generation of of, um, uh, conquest as they went into the promised land. God's full intention was that He bring them out of Egypt, they go to the promised land, and He gives them the conquest of the land, and they go in and possess it. But it did not happen, did it? And so the writer of Hebrews uses this to illustrate his point (coughs) that those of unbelief lost out. They did not get to uh, get this uh, inheritance. And so uh, only those that were able to uh, have their faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ were able to become part of the promised land. And so he uses this as an illustration. Um, He talks about the fact that Christ is greater than Joshua and that they are urged at the end of chapter 4 or middle of chapter 4 to enter into their eternal rest uh, by the faith that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so the importance of putting their faith in Christ and Christ alone, not their works, not the Old Testament keeping of the law. There's a group of folks around today that will tell you that we still have to keep the Old Testament law. In order to be saved there are those that think that we still need to practice uh, the Passover and the sacrifices and the festivals and the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews very very clearly that when the new covenant was established it made the old covenant obsolete there's no longer in effect and so that we're now under grace we're not under the law anymore we're not under that bondage anymore now the, the law is still a schoolmaster it teaches us the morality of God it teaches us God's heart on issues but we are no longer under its bondage. And so very, very important to uh, keep this straight in our minds and understanding. As we head to the second portion of the book, The Superiority of Christ's Work, uh, the writer switches gears from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to his position uh, as a priest. He refers to him as uh, a priest that is not after the priesthood of uh, even Aaron, again showing his superiority over even the, uh, the priestly line, the Levitical line. the Lord Jesus was not a priest uh, after the line of Levi. He was not a Levite. And so his claim to priesthood, uh, the writer of Hebrews establishes, was after the order of Melchizedek. And, of course, Melchizedek, that great priest in the Old Testament that Abraham went to and uh, gave honor to and tithe to. Um, And so Christ is uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We find that in chapter 7 and verse number 9 in the fact that by divine oath, Christ is the permanent and He is the perfect High Priest and the mediator of a better covenant. We find this in chapter 8. He is the permanent and perfect High Priest. There had never been a permanent High Priest before, nor had there been a perfect High Priest before, and one that could truly be an eternal mediator between God and men. And Christ is the first one to be able to meet these requirements. The only one that's able to meet these requirements. And so the Old Testament need for a priest was done away with at Calvary. And I'm thankful today that when I come to the Lord Jesus in prayer or to spend time with Him, I don't have to come through a priest. I have the Lord Jesus Christ to come to. I can go very uh, right into the very presence of God Himself and lay my petitions before Him and pray because Christ is my eternal and my perfect uh, mediator. Uh, <clears throat> the New Covenant was something that was established, and in chapter 7, I believe it is, the Bible uses something that I think is one of the great truths of Scripture, and that is that Christ has become the surety, and that's the word that's used there, the surety of the New Testament or the New Covenant. Uh let me, and I've shared this a little bit before, but let me just make sure everybody understands what this means. When there was a covenant entered into uh, in the Old Testament, the penalty for breaking that covenant was death. Um, you did not break covenant. It was stronger than a contract. We try to say, well, a contract today is the same as a covenant. No, because you break a contract today, there may be a penalty to it, but you still live. Uh, you did not break a covenant in the Old Testament. It was something that was an unbreakable uh, covenant between... People. And if either side broke the covenant, the penalty for the other was death. Here's the problem. God created covenants with men. And because we are sinful men, we are destined to break our covenant with God. God doesn't break it, but we do. And of course, the penalty of that is death. So what's so important about this idea that Christ is the surety of the new covenant? is the fact that when I do break covenant, and I will, and when you break covenant with God, and you will, that Christ says the penalty for that has already been paid for. Put it on my account. And this gives us the doctrine of eternal security. Once we're saved, we are in Christ. He is the guarantor. He is the surety. He is, if you want to put it in modern terms, it would say the co signer of uh, the New Testament. In other words, he stands on our side and is the one who says, as we stand before God in the, in the process of making this covenant of, of uh, the redemption that uh, is so, given, so graciously given at Calvary, as we enter into this covenant, uh, that when we sin again, even after we're saved, when we sin again, the old accuser comes and tries to say, Greg broke covenant with you. When he made that decision to trust you as his Savior and entered into that covenant with you, he broke covenant by sinning again. And the great accuser will do that. Christ steps forward and says, I, I'm on. I'm the advocate for Greg. I've got that on my account. It's already paid for. Once saved, always saved. When I got saved, all of my sin was forgiven. Past, present, and future. Now, the problem with teaching something like that is, because of our sinful, undone condition, our depraved natures, Our flesh wants to say, well, if that's the case, then I just want to go out here and live however I want to now. Paul addressed that in Romans chapter number 6. We need to die to our old flesh. We need to be crucified with Christ. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so while we do have the grace of God given to us, and while Christ is the surety and the guarantor and the one that gives us eternal security, it does not give us license or right to go out here and live however we want to live. There are churches that teach that, by the way. There are churches that will come out and tell people, uh, you get this thing of, uh, I I, I, I cringe sometimes as I hear uh, people say, well, uh, why don't you just follow the Lord? And they'll say, how many of you want to follow the Lord? And they'll raise their hands and they'll tell people, we had 500 people trust Christ today and say they want to follow the Lord. I'll tell you this, there's a lot of people who want to follow the Lord. It doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean they've put their faith in Him. Um, There were three men that were dealt with when the Lord Jesus Christ was in His earthly ministry. And one of them came to Him and said, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And the Lord gave him a little bit of a taste of what it was going to cost him to do that. And the fella we don't hear of him again. He doesn't follow the Lord. The second one, the Lord called him and said, uh, Follow me. And he said, I will, but let me first go. And he had an excuse also. And the third one, the same thing. Had an excuse. They were all willing to follow him. It's not enough. The problem was they weren't willing to follow him first. They weren't willing to give him everything and say, I, I, I want to I make sure that you are uh, the one I'm trusting in for everything. To lay our whole life on them, and so uh, our 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 problem in the world today is we've got a lot of churches that are teaching people that you just need to you just need to try to live a good life and you need to follow the Lord. And I tell you this, it needs to be more than that. We need to trust the Lord. We need to put our faith in Him for what He's done for us on Calvary, and then let Him do the work of salvation. Let Him seal us. Let Him be the surety. Let Him be the guarantor of that salvation. We ought to love Him for what He's done for us, and that love ought to constrain us to do what is right. We shouldn't get out here and just live like the world simply because we have this surety in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he deals with that in verse uh, chapter, uh, eight, uh, chapter 7, chapter 8. And now the Bible teaches us that the Lord now ministers... In what's called a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Look with me in chapter number nine, and let's look at this very quickly. Chapter nine, and let's look in verse number 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us i like that word eternal redemption thank you brother mark eternal uh, redemption for us for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling of the unclean sanctified through the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living god "...for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance." And so again, he is the one that is the mediator of the New Testament, the new promise that God made to man to redeem them from their sins. And so uh, he is the priest in every way superior to, Uh, He's the high priest that is perfect. He's the high priest that is eternal. He's the high priest of a tabernacle that is not made by hands. And so all of the shadow of things that were given in the Old Testament by way of Old Testament law and practices, uh, He is superior to all of that. The Bible teaches us that He is a high priest that is able to uh, understand the feeling of our infirmities. Because of the fact that He was incarnate, because He was God come down to man in human form, He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And we don't have a high priest who cannot understand what we go through. We have a high priest that understands it very vividly. He has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands the temptations that are there. He understands the battle of the flesh nature and the sin. Uh, that comes that way, that temptation. He was tempted by the devil himself uh, at least three different occasions that we know of, and uh, was yet without sin. He understands the heartache of losing people. He lost his dearest friend Lazarus. He understands the pain and the suffering of that. He understands the burden of bearing the weight and the sin of mankind as he uh, wept in the Garden of Eden and shed his, or great drops of blood. This was a high priest, that there's no thing that you and I can go through that we could say has been greater than what God can understand. Because He has understood all of the feelings of our infirmities. There's nothing we can go through that He is not able to relate to and understand. And I'm thankful I have a Savior like that. Not only does He save me, but He deals with my life as someone who knows what I'm going through. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have to know these things. So, unlike former priests, this priest, this high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one who offers himself as the voluntary sacrifice, able to die once for all. He doesn't have to die every time. He doesn't have to be re-sacrificed over and over every year. He died once for all. Again, it shows Christ superior in every aspect, in His person and in His work. We no longer have to do the Old Testament practices of sacrificing lambs and goats. We don't have to do the Passover to keep the Passover and do those types of things. We just have to put our faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done for us. And then He will be the surety of that salvation. In the last section, we get to chapter 10. Having established the superiority of Christ's person and His work in every way, the writer now switches gears and kind of puts the emphasis back on the people. He says, listen, because of this, because Christ is far superior in every way, He's the one that is the surety of your salvation. He's the one that is the surety of the New Testament. Then don't waver in your faith. Don't waver in it. Don't let these false teachers come along and undermine your faith, and cause you to, to be in unbelief. And so he charges them in this. And as we get to chapter 11, that great, great faith chapter, he spends the first three verses of chapter 11 defining what faith is. And a couple of weeks ago, we actually t- preached on that and uh, what faith is. It is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, it takes things that are uh, otherwise wishful thinking, and it makes them as if they're already in existence. Why? Because we trust the one that made the promise, and even though it hasn't happened yet, we are determined and know for a fact that it will happen, as surely as if it already has. This is faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. And then he takes the rest of the chapter, from verse four to chapter or to verse forty in chapter eleven. He takes the rest of the chapter to give illustration after illustration after illustration of people who were faith. Faithful to have faith that was unshaken. They would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they would trust Him. I was writing some curriculum this week for Vacation Bible School, and one of them is the crossing of the Red Sea. What a beautiful picture this is, where the children of Israel are pinned against the Red Sea and there is no escape. There is nothing they can do to stop the annihilation that was getting ready to take place. They were destined to be destroyed. And you remember what what Moses told the people? He got up before him and he said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I'll tell you, that took an act of faith, not only for Moses to say it, but for the people to obey it. Because if I'm seeing the Egyptian army out there, I'm going to my camper and I'm trying to find every gun, every, every, uh, every slingshot, every sword I can find to try to defend myself. And I'm trying to barricade and and dig dig, uh, foxholes or put sandbags up. But God told him to stand still. In other words, there's nothing, Israel, that you can do to spare yourself from the Egyptian army. But what's impossible for you is possible for me. And God said, I will make a way. And He tells Moses what to do. And sure enough, He goes over to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea parts and opens up. And the Bible says that the children of Israel... Walk through in dry ground. What were they doing? They were putting their faith in the fact that they could do nothing and that their deliverance was only through what God would do. And I think that's a wonderful picture of salvation. Because we get to a place where we realize there is not one thing we can do to save ourselves. And if God doesn't make it possible, we're lost. And God made a way, didn't He? He made a way. What a joy it is to know these things. And so he illustrates this uh, in chapter 11 of these men of great faith. And um, then he talks about in chapter 12 uh, the continuation of their faith in the area of God's provision and God's protection. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one that supplied the faith. He's the one that will continue to provide the faith in us and to allow us to be able to keep faithful to the Lord to the end. Um, he, deals, he deals in the at rest of chapter 12 and 13 a little bit with some of the persecution that was going on, how these folks needed to stay Uh, faithful during this time and not to turn from their faith and return to Judaism, it would have been very easy for these people to reject Christ and to go back to Judaism and not suffer the persecution they were going through. It It wasn't a problem to be a Jew. It was a problem to be a Christian at that time. And that's what the great persecution came from. And so the writer of Hebrews warns them not to turn away from Christ during such time and that their character is shaped by their dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that, tr- that statement holds true for all of us. Our character is shaped by our dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I trust Him at His Word? Do I, do I hold faith faithful to what He has said? And if so, it affects my character. Do I doubt Him? Do I have unbelief? Am I unsure of what He has said? Then it affects my character. And so our character, for a large part, is determined. It is shaped. It is molded by our dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. You show me a person that's lacking in Christian character, and you'll find a person that is not dedicated to Christ very much at all. But you find somebody who loves the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, you'll find a person that has great Christian character. Again, we don't know specifically who the author is. Quite possibly it's Paul. It's a lot of people who said that that it is the Apostle Paul. (coughs) Chapter 2. It talks about the fact that he had uh, written some things that he had heard from others. And some people say, well, that's probably why it was not Paul, because Paul said he had not gotten this from man, but he had gotten it from God uh, in another book. Um, But I don't know that that's a strong enough argument for that. He does refer to Timothy in chapter 13 and verse number 23. So that's another reason why it could have been possibly the Apostle Paul. Uh, Some people say it could have been Barnabas. I would say this, that at the very least it would have had to have been somebody who was very intimately involved and influenced by the Apostle Paul's ministry, if not the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, According to chapter 13, verses 18 to 24, uh, whoever it was was known to the Hebrews of the day, Uh, the the Hebrew Christians of the day. They knew who he was. Uh, You'll see the familiarity with which he closes the letter out and asking them to pray for him. So apparently they knew uh, who the writer was, at least at that point. And it could very possibly have been Paul. We won't know till we get to heaven. Uh, the time of Hebrews uh, would have been towards the end uh, of Paul's ministry. Again, probably in that 62 or so 80 era of time. Maybe 63, somewhere in there. Uh, we're not exactly sure positive what year the Apostle Paul died in. Um, but uh, it was during his second Roman imprisonment. And uh, so certainly it was towards the end of that time period. Christ is shown in Hebrews as our eternal high priest. He is shown as the divine human who is all God and all man. He is shown as the great prophet. He is shown as the kingly priest. He is shown in His deity in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse number 8. He is shown in His humanity from chapter 2, verse 9, verse 14, verse 17, and verse 18. And then there are over 20 titles that the writer of Hebrews gives to the Lord Jesus Christ to describe His attributes. Twenty different titles, actually over twenty titles, that are used throughout the book of Hebrews. I'll give you a few of those. He's referred to as the heir of all things. He is referred to as the apostle. He is referred to as the high priest. He's referred to as a mediator. He's referred to as the author and finisher of our faith. And so on and so forth. He goes on through Scripture in this particular book. Uh, using titles uh, to illustrate the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the book, is, as we've said, is the superiority of Christ, the key verses. Uh, let's take a moment to read those very quickly. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 16 through 16. Let's look over there, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight, and the sand which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The key chapter, I would say, would have to be chapter 11, as we see faith so vividly described and and identified and then illustrated uh, throughout that chapter, and to give the uh, basis, to give the foundation to exhort the people not to depart from the faith, to remain steadfast and to hold fast to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful once again for Your Word and how it instructs and guides us. I pray that You would help us as we uh, go throughout this day that You will speak to our hearts. And Lord, may Your your Holy Spirit do His work.